The sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 25, through chapter 6, verse 10. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I imagine you've heard either this or something similar to it, when a person would express that they love Jesus, but just not the church. They love Jesus, but, but they don't love the church. Now, uh, this I'm sure you've heard... Um, it's actually, Barna Research Group is a group of uh, people who do research on religious trends in our country. And in a recent survey, they found that this kind of group, I love Jesus, but not the church, really, it makes up 10% of the country, not 10% of Christians, but 10% of the country. Now, these aren't, these aren't just Christians on the side, on the periphery. These are people that are committed to the, what we would consider the orthodox parts of the faith that they love Jesus, they just don't love the church. Now, I imagine that I'm sympathetic to some that probably maybe have just bad theology. You know, they just, they don't recognize the nature of the church and the role the church plays in God's outworking of redemption through the world. They don't, they don't get it. So maybe it's bad theology or bad ecclesiology, I would say. Uh, for others, it may be just bad experience. You know, they've been burned by the church. They've been hurt. They've had conflict unresolved. They've faced some dilemma that the church either created or wasn't able to solve. And so maybe bad theology, it may be bad experience. Um, but but the, the sad, this growing, it was uh, 6% back in 2007 and then 10% in 2017. Um, the, the sad feature here is that the church has been given not simply to declare the glory of God in evangelism, but the church is the vehicle through which God is going to display his love to the world by the way we care for each other. This is the last thing Paul gets to in his letter. Is he speaking about the nature of the church being a place to care? Now, Paul's been laying this theological foundation for us on the nature of the gospel. He's been speaking about the rich treasures that we have, that we've been born anew, we've been adopted into God's family, we're children of Abraham by faith, we are dwelt within by the Spirit of God. We're part of a new inbreaking kingdom. He's been speaking about the theological foundation of the church, and, and now he's going to be speaking about the building that goes on top of it. Theologians often discuss this as first Paul tells us who we are, you know, what Christ has done, he has remade us who we are, and then it speaks to what we do. How do we 
live in light of it. You know, the one's theological instruction, and now Paul is speaking to us both last week and this week and next week with practical instruction. In other words, what do we do? If you have been born again, if you have been made new by the Spirit, if you're part of his kingdom now, this overlapping of the ages, you've been forgiven, you've been adopted. So then what do you do? Well, what Paul tells us is we begin to care for each other. We care for each other deeply. Now, you know, in this passage that Kimmy read, it's just a string of imperatives. That's a string of commands. It's do this, 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 and this. And so I want to kind of clump them together, and I want to do something a little different. I just want to look at them in, in five ways, what he says, and then throw all the application at the end of the sermon. So I just want you thinking with me right now. And just kind of lining yourself up as Scott prayed, allowing the scripture to kind of direct you that you're not rejecting impulses. You're, you're listening to what Paul's describing the church to be. And then I'll make some applications at the end. So the first thing we see about this, it's a spirit-led community that he's talking about here. Paul's saying if you've been born again, if you've been born of the spirit, now you're part of a, a spirit-led community. You see that when he says that if we live by the Spirit, now that word if can be translated since, because Paul knows we've been filled with the Spirit. Since you've been, since you walk with, the, since you live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Look what he says. The first thing he tells us is, is to think rightly about yourself, to, to have a right understanding of who you are in relationship to God, not in comparison to others but in relationship to God. That's the first thing. See it in 25 and 26. He says, if we live by the Spirit, or since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the first thing he says is don't become conceited. Pride ruins relationships. Pride will crush a church. And there's two, way that pride, there's two ways that pride works that you see here in the text. He says don't become conceited, don't provoke one another. You know, th this idea of, of provoking one is like wanting to enter into a contest, kind of sticking the, you know, kind of the stick in the cage, you know, kind of poking the bear. You, you're, you're, you feel better than somebody else, and you want to prove it. You want to show them how good you are, how smart you are, how, how better you are than them. And so there's that provocation that I want to get into a contest with you. That's the picture here. And that is one form of pride. We feel better. And we want to make sure that everybody around us knows it by what we post, what we say, how we act. We want to let you know, hey, this is who I am. I'm just a little bit above you. But then he says, you know, that don't become conceited by provoking or envy. And some of us don't feel better. Some of us feel lesser. And so we're always in a position of envy. And we wish we were like that person. We wish we had what they had. We wish we had the opportunities that they had. You know, the provoking leads to kind of disagreement within the community of faith because it's, you know, there's a contest going on. Who's better? Uh, but inferiority causes the same struggle. We just slip into despair or kind of, kind of suffering that sense of I'm always less than. In other words, they're both sides. They're two different sides of the same coin. You know, one is provoking, proving my superiority. One is mourning over my inferiority. It's either look at me or woe is me. But it's the same thing. You know, pride can manifest itself in two different ways. John Stott says it this way. He says, we adopt 
towards each other, one of these two attitudes. If we regard ourselves as superior to others, we, we challenge them. We want them to know we're better. If we regard ourselves as inferior, we envy them. Both are fueled by pride. In other words, what do you do when you hear of really good news for somebody? It, it, you haven't experienced it, but you heard about someone getting a promotion or getting some accolade or some encouragement. Are you happy for them? Or do you immediately feel a sense of, well, why not me? Or, or if someone really takes a bad turn and they, they suffer some form of loss, do you mourn for them or do you think they had a comment to? Finally, it'll set them in their place. It'll straighten them up. In other words, pride always comes out of how we view ourselves in relation to other people. I'm not asking you, as part of the Spirit-led community, to self-loathe or self-hate, you know, or always be you know, kind of self-deprecating. No, I'm asking you to think rightly of yourself, that we're humbling ourselves before God. C.S. Lewis said it probably the most memorable way when he talks about humility is not thinking less about yourself, it's just thinking about yourself less. So it's not tearing yourself down, it's just not putting yourself front and center of everything. Paul said the same thing in Romans. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. This is kind of like an honest appraisal of who we are. This is how God's wired me. This is my creatureliness. I just ordered a book, You're Only Human, kind of helping us live within the limitations of who we actually are. So, so a, a spirit-led community is filled with people who don't think too highly of themselves, and they don't think too lowly of themselves. They, they think soberly about themselves with joy. Okay, the second thing we see here is that we restore people who are caught in the sin. Look with me at 6.1. It says, Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, it assumes we are going to sin here and sin against each other on a fairly regular basis. So let's just get that assumption right out of the way. Now, he's saying that we're called to restore these who are caught in sin. Now, that word caught can mean like by surprise or maybe by ignorance. The implication is not a hardened, premeditated, calloused sinner. That doesn't seem to be what it's going after. It's a person who may get caught up. They get tripped up along the way. They begin to develop destructive patterns in their life. Maybe by surprise, maybe by ignorance, maybe by just being casual. But they've slipped into a pattern of sin where they're kind of they're all caught up. And he's saying, restore them. In other words, don't ignore them if you see a brother or sister getting their legs kind of tangled up in some behavior that's destructive to the soul. Don't ignore them. Don't kick them to the curb for sure. And don't act as if that's not your problem. It's their issue. No, he says restore them. And the word restore means like to rebuild the wall. You know if a wall suffers damage and it kind of gets knocked down? You don't just chuck the whole wall. No, you begin to rebuild it. You get it working again. You get it usable again. The same words used in mending nets. You know, if a fisherman's net tears, you don't know. Throw it. They didn't do it like we, to throw it to the garbage and go buy another one. 
No, they mend the nets. They repair the brokenness. That's what he's saying to restore those who are caught in sin. Now notice he describes the group that should be doing this. Those who are spiritual. Well, is that like super Christians? Is that like those just super duper Christians that nobody can get near? I don't think so. Those who are spiritual are those with the spirit. It should be all Christians. But you know, there there are times when Christians aren't walking by the spirit. They're not being led by the spirit. They should not be doing that work. There is a distinction. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul was dealing with the Corinthian church. They were fighting. They were bickering. They were backbiting. They were not walking in the power of the Spirit. And so he refers to them as infants in Christ. I think what Paul's saying here is those of you who are spiritual, it should be all of us, but those of you who are walking in the Spirit should restore, should care front, not confront, but care front the one who's caught in sin and encourage him out of it. You notice he tells us how. He says with gentleness. It's not with heavy-handedness, shame, you should know better. Not in that kind of behavior. The restoration should be gentle. And the reason we do it gently is because, Why? He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. I mean, I may be restoring you. You may be restoring me in two weeks. I, I mean, I'm susceptible. You're susceptible to the same issues. So there's a, a gentleness, a humility that's born out of our own recognition that we are all going to trip and falter and fall at one point. But that's what we are. We're pilgrims kind of helping restore each other as we're going along the way so that we keep mending the nets all the way until that final day. This is what he's speaking about here, this, this restoration of the, of the sinner. Charles Spurgeon says, you, you want to set the bone back in place. If it's a broken bone, set it back in place. There's a gentleness here. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, run to him. And Martin Luther, <clears throat> if you've read much about history, uh, he is often seen as... Um, I would just say, of high volatility, of emotions, of a lot of heat, a lot of, you know, kind of, you can imagine maybe some thundering preaching, but here's what he says about it. <clears throat> he says, run to him, reach out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. That's the way to restore. Churches often fail at doing it this way. We get scared. We're afraid sin's going to permeate the whole place. And we just come down on it like moral police. And boom, we're going to eradicate it immediately. We don't set the bone. I've been guilty of that. We all have. But the, the spirit-led community is restoring the one caught in sin. Not stepping on him. Not shooting the wounded. History has had a long church of shooting our wounded. I, I feel like I ought to, you know, just remark on behalf of the universal church that we have done this poorly. So the spirit-led community is one that restores the sinner. But, but thirdly, you see, the spirit-led community also, also bears the burdens of one another. And notice with me in 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You can hear Paul kind of rolling out these commands to the church. Now that you know who you are, now that you know you've got the spirit within you, 
God will give you the grace to bear with one another. The assumption is we're going to have burdens, all of us. God hasn't designed any of you to bear all your burdens. He's designed it so that we would bear one another's burdens. Now, uh, many scholars think that he's referring here to bearing burdens would mean uh, that we're going to restore the sinners, we're going to restore the broken. I think it may mean that, but I think it means more. Literally, to bear the burden means that you're going to take the weight off a person and you're going to bear that load with them so they're not getting crushed by it. But now you've come under it, so now you're able to help bear it. Now, of course, the quintessential example of this is seen in Jesus Christ, who has borne our burdens, right? Did Jesus not say to us, burdened by sin, come unto me, you who are heavy laden and burdened? We're burdened with sin. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'll give you rest for your soul, forgiveness. You won't bear those burdens anymore. Like like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, the burden will fall off. So Jesus has borne our burden. This is the gospel story here. Jesus has borne our burdens before the Father that we might be reconciled, reclaimed, restored, redeemed. He restored the one caught in sin. But now we bear each other's burdens. Not in a redemptive way, as if we're propitiating sin for God, but in a reflective way as we're now displaying. And that's why I think Paul says, and thus you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Not the law of Moses. We're done with that. But the law of Christ, we're reflecting Christ now by bearing one another's struggles as he bore our greatest struggle. To bear with one another these burdens. Now, what are these burdens I'm talking about? Well, it can be practical burdens. Maybe a single parent with a child to raise. Hey, that's a burden. That's a real burden. How do we bear with that? Or, or perhaps a, a person who's single. Or perhaps if they're the later stages of life, they're older. They have unique burdens, maybe loneliness. How do we bear with them to care for them? I think he refers to, I think, relational burdens, marital problems. Can we come underneath those with marital problems, with problems with parenting, with children? Or maybe someone just really has a quirky personality. They don't have the nuance to know you don't do that here. They, they, they need to be kind of, we have to bear with that. What does that look like? Again, to, to speak, it doesn't deny a hard word, but we just try to bear with them. Or, or maybe it's mental anguish, depression. Maybe it's someone suffering of the consequence of their own sin. Can we bear with them? Now, you know a lot of these burdens are observable. You can see them play it out. And so you can move to them to help bear. Others are not observable. They're just beneath the surface. And so there is a requirement on the burden to be able to say, I'm struggling here. There has to be that safety of being able to say, yeah, I'm really, my marriage is in tatters. I mean, I'm really suffering. Or, you know what, I'm failing at being a parent. Or I'm in financial ruin over some mistakes I made and overspending and i pursuing things that I thought would give me happiness. Or I'm just lonely. I don't have a lot of friends. I don't make friends easy. I don't keep friends for long. And so we're to bear their burdens. That means that we're to come alongside and pray with them, support them. Again, it may be a word of admonishment. It may be a word of patience. 
But, but he gives us a warning here about those who don't want to bear burdens. Look at me at 3 to 5. These are kind of confusing verses, kind of throw people off. In 3 to 5 he says, If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each of us test his own work, and then his reason, let me say that again, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have his own load to bear, or each will have to bear his own load. So what's he saying here? Well, I think he's saying this, that, you know, in this church, we have various burdens borne by various people. Some are heavier than others. And I think that some of us, if we don't have a lot of burdens or we don't have a lot of struggles, you've had a lot of opportunities, things have gone well for you, that you begin to think, yeah, life is okay. And, and you look at others with burdens and you can think, well, they're just kind of getting what they did and it's just working out as it should. And you can begin to think more highly of yourself because you don't have the same burdens. And you think more highly of yourself. And what he's saying here is, he's saying if you think you're something, when you're nothing, you're deceived. You notice there in verse 5, each one will have to bear his own load. God has providentially, and this is really a, a word of help, I think. God has providentially, he apportions what we walk through in life. And so if God has given to some a heavier load and you a lighter load, don't judge yourself in light of them. He says, he says but each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. We can look at everyone else and determine how good they have it or how bad they have it and we relate ourselves to God by virtue of everybody else. And he's saying don't do that. If you're in a season now where you're not burdened by things, then help those who are burdened. You may be in a season later of bearing a heavier load, and you'll need their help. So it, it, don't look around and try to apportion who God loves or who God doesn't love based upon burdens being distributed. That, that God has developed this interconnectedness. You know, in any of anybody over 50, you know the seasons of life you have. There are sweet times, there are difficult times, there are great times, there are bad times. And in all those times, we're to be bearing one another's burdens or helping bear the burdens of another. This is what a spirit-led community does. We're looking around and we're understanding, if I'm in a season right now where things are going smoothly, then praise God for that and look to bear up others around you who are not doing so well. You're teaching them to then do the same thing. When you're in the hole and they're still living, they will do it to another and they're... So, so there's this sharing going on here. That's what marks a spirit-led community. But there's a fourth thing that we see in the spirit-led community, and that's exercising generosity. Look with me in 6 to 8. He says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. These are really incredible verses here. You can just imagine Paul penning these last number of lines, trying to remind us now that you're filled with the Spirit. He's saying simply this, be generous with those who teach you, those who lead you, those who prepare you those who are trying to get your soul ready to see God. In fact, Brian reminded me of an article written by Ray Ortland about, you know, pay your pastor to study. 
You know, you're paying your pastor to study so that he can think deeply on an issue, give it to you so that you'd be prepared to see God. And that applies to all those that are teaching, all the leadership of this church that, that are seeking your spiritual good. So he says to be generous, to exercise, to share. But he says all good things, not just finances, which you do. You as a church support a staff. This staff is seeking to serve you, to prepare you well to see God. But share all things. That may mean charity. That may mean giving us the benefit of the doubt when we try to lead well. Or when we're attempting to lead well. It may be not thinking the worst of a decision being made. It may be being charitable with the time that you have to get involved in the ministries that the church has, has kind of sanctioned and encouraged. So he's calling that a spirit-led community is a generous community, but not just with the leadership, with all. You see him kind of broaden this principle in verses 7 and 8. In 7 and 8, he says, don't be deceived, God's not mocked. In other words, while we're still on this topic of generosity, he's saying, don't be self-deluded to think that God doesn't know what you have and, and that God doesn't see. God's not mocked. He's not going to be... He's not going to be outwitted by your stinginess or lack of generosity. He's aware. He's given you all that you have. He sees all that you do. He sees how you steward your wealth, your time, your talents, your treasures. He sees it all. But look at the principle that he gives. He says, whatever you sow is what you reap. Now, a first grader understands that. A first grader understands that if you go plant a third of a field, that you're not going to intend to harvest a whole field. You know, what you sow is what you reap. But notice how he drives it down deeper into how we sow. He says those who sow to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Those who sow to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. What is sowing to the flesh? Well, we've already seen the word flesh. We're children of the flesh. It's our human nature. Sowing to the flesh is really using my, my resources my talents, my gifts, my time, and I sow it to my own purposes. Maybe I have dreams. I want to live here. I want to drive this. I want to have this kind of education. I want to, I want to have this kind of job. And it's taking everything we have, and it's just sowing it into our own lives so that I'm always profiting. It doesn't have to be material things. It can be our name recognition. I want to get my name out there. I want to be, I want to be well-known. I want to be recognized. I want to be appreciated. So I'm going to speak about it. I'm going to make efforts towards the advancement of my own name. It can be either one. But it's a sowing to ourselves. So if we spend our lives and all that God has given to us in terms of times and talents and treasure, if we just sow them into our own good, he's saying you're going to reap corruption. It's a real warning. It's a real, I don't know that Paul thinks of the Galatian church this way, but it is a warning that we have to be aware of. The contrast is to sow to the Spirit. To sow to the Spirit means that I'm going to take, God, what gifts you've given to me, even if it's only a few, the time you've given to me, I'm going to, I'm going to sow them into the kingdom. I mean, I'm going to pour them. I, I, I'm going to want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to want to take the deeds of my flesh. I want to crucify them. I want to live for the Spirit. I want to, I want to serve in the kingdom. It doesn't mean you don't meet the needs you have in your life again. It don't... don't don't polarize this discussion and making it impractical. But, but to sow to the Spirit is to invest in this kingdom of which you're part of. And you'll reap eternal life. Notice all this sowing and reaping. You know, the, the idea of reaping is always a metaphor for final judgment. 
you know, the farmer works, 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 works. He's always looking for that final day. And when that final day comes, they're going to harvest the crops. It's going to be a glorious day. And it should be for us. And that's, what, that's how he's encouraging to us. So he's saying that we ought to be generous. To what degree do we exercise generosity? Uh, to what degree are we willing to be inconvenienced with our time? To what degree are we willing to give up something that we wanted so that something could get something? Well, yeah, how often will we give up something that we want to give to something what they need? It's a difference. There's a fifth facet, though, of the spirit-led community, and the fifth facet is simply that we just, it's a generalization, but just do good to people, to do good. Obviously, it's going to be using our resources, but look with me at 9 and 10. And by the way, being generous does not get us into the kingdom. You can't buy your way into the kingdom. The idea is simply this, that we give ourselves to that which we love. We do. We give ourselves to that which we love. And to the degree that we love ourselves, we will give ourselves to that. To the degree that we love God, we give ourselves to him. Now, obviously, it's, it's going to be a mixture, you know, because we're, we're people that are, we believe, help our unbelief kind of thing. Uh, but but, but that, that's a marker as to, you know, what Paul is saying here is he doesn't think you can buy yourself into the kingdom. But over the years, over your life, to which you give yourself, that's what you love. And if you're, if you're exercising generosity to those in need and, and those who are burdened, alleviating struggles and so forth, uh, it, will be, it will be clear over time. The last one, though, is to do good. Look with me at 9 and 10. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul's saying, he's saying, you know, you see all these, and let us, and let us, and let us. You, you hear this corporate call to the church, and let us do good. Let's do good. Let, let's do good. Let's not give up, though. Now, remember, doing good is wearying. Being in Christian ministry can be fatiguing. When you bear the burdens of someone who's struggled for years with the same thing, it's tiring. You know the feeling you get. You're hearing the, the person express their suffering and their hardship, and, and you're, you're bracing yourself. You want to hear. You want to be engaged. He says, don't give up. It is wearying. There's no doubt. There's a call for perseverance. And that's why he again says, in due season, we will reap. He doesn't tell us what we're going to reap, by the way. I trust if God's good, it'll be good. He says, don't give up. Don't give up. But notice, he says, as we have opportunity. Listen, the troubles of this world are like a tsunami. We couldn't handle them. But he says, as we have opportunity, the idea is that each of us has these opportunities, these unique moments. You know, when you're prompted by God's Spirit, I, I, I should help that. Or, you know what, I just became aware of this. Let me do something. You, you, you're prompted to do it, and sometimes you do it, and sometimes you don't. I'll often have people give me a, an envelope with cash and say, could you give this to so-and-so? I think they came on troubled times. They saw the opportunity. They were made aware of it. Nobody else knew it, but they wanted to help, so they just gave it to me to make it anonymous. Or you have a situation, a couple families go down, or a saint in the church recently, just two families go down with COVID, they just dropped two meals off. They heard about it, they responded to it. I think that's what Paul's saying, is God providentially puts us in these places that when you hear, you can't fix every problem in the world. 
But those opportunities that do come to your front step, let's move in regard to that. I think that the Spirit-led community is doing that. We're looking around, how can I do good to people? Have you ever thought that? I mean, how can I do good to people? As you have opportunity. Notice, though, he gives us priority first to the household of faith. We call this the law of moral proximity. The law of moral proximity. In other words, you are responsible to care for the needs of those closest to you. So a father and a mother caring for their children. Should they care and be concerned with the, with the needs of the world? Yes, they should, but, but feed your children. Make sure those closest to you that God has given to you to care for. So we want to take care of those in the church. We want to good, do good to each one of us here as we have opportunity, but also to the world. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. So you see that the spirit-led community is marked by thinking rightly on ourselves. It's marked by restoring sinners, restoring those caught up, being patient, bearing with one another, exercising generosity, and generally looking to do good to meet the needs of those around us. It may be on a financial issue. It may not be. Sometimes it's easier to give a turkey to somebody that's hungry than it is to listen for the 10th time of someone who's really suffering. So doing good can be all kinds of things. So what do we do with this? So here we are as a church. We're gathered together on the Lord's Day. We're hearing God's word. We've worshiped God in song. We've prayed. God has uniquely appointed the places and the times in which we live. So what do we do with this? Let me encourage you. Let me just give you kind of five exhortations. Just, I don't know if it's five or six. I forget, but there's more than four and less than, less than seven. So let's just say, what I remember, you will get. <laughs> I, I would ask you first, would you join with me in pursuing humility? And, and by that I mean that you would you would recognize this truth, that the way we regard ourselves is going to be how we intersect and how we interact with others. That we would pursue a humility before God. Now, some of you have just incredible gifts and abilities. You do. You're intelligent. You've done well in life. And there is the tendency to think thoughts of, look at how well I'm doing. You've maybe excelled in whatever areas that you've been in. Let me encourage you to keep asking yourself what Paul asked the Corinthian church in the fourth chapter. What do I have that I haven't received? And why should I boast as if I didn't receive it? Just ask yourself. Take your soul to task. If you, if you have these sense of, yeah, look at how things are going well, how well I've done, ask yourself these questions. Remind yourself, what do I have that I haven't received? Why am I boasting as if I've created it all? We've been created. We haven't created anything. Anything we've built has been with stuff that's given to us and talents given to us, time given to us, energy given to us. So everything we've done is on loan. But, but if, you have, if you have this tendency to woe is me or you feel inferior, you always feel less than, fight that too. That's just the dark side of pride. Celebrate those who are in your midst who are doing well. Make much of them. Thank God for them. That's the way I fight. When I feel, have feelings of inferiority, I pray for people and I thank God for them. That, that's how I do it. That's how I fight. If someone does better, better preaching than I am, have this or that, God, thank you for them. Maybe the first couple of prayers, I don't really believe it, but then I pray until I pray kind of thing. And I keep asking myself, God bless that ministry. That's why we pray for all these other churches here. 
We want them to do well. So pursue humility. And the way we pursue humility is not by looking around, but looking at God. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 57. He says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, and who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Does anybody answer to that call here? Who is high, lifted up, inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I mean, when we begin to get a picture of the glory of God, humility will become our friend quickly. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. If we have to do this every day, remind yourself of who God is. So let's pursue humility. That, that's to keep in step with the Spirit in verse 25. Keeping in step with the Spirit is by pursuing humility. Uh, secondly, it's exercising spiritual care to others. It, it's actively, what do you do when someone falls into sin? How do you respond? What's your first response when you hear about it? Are you scared that it might be you? Or are you glad that they had it coming to them? How do you respond? Do you find them now? Well, they're unusable. You know, they can't be used. How do you respond when you hear people are caught in sin? Does your heart break? I mean, do you want to see? Consider the joy that there is in helping a brother or sister find their way to freedom. Uh, consider the happiness that we have when we can be useful to God in seeing somebody's wall that got a little broken and that we add a few bricks to it and we begin to restore it. There's great joy in that. You know, many people think this is kind of the first step of church restoration found in Matthew 18. And, and, and what Jesus says in Matthew 18 is, if you confront a brother and he repents, Jesus says, you've gained a brother. You've gained one. You have a brother now. You've helped lead him to freedom. And by the way, you're humble about it because he may lead you to the same freedom five years from now. So, so, so we want to be a church that gently, we're spiritual people. That doesn't mean pious and sanctimonious. It means that we're seeking the Spirit to use us in the lives of one another. So just look in your concentric circles of life, family, friends, church community, and how can I serve others to free them or to help them or to encourage them? And then, and then third, keeping in step with the Spirit would be by bearing with one another, bearing with one another. Uh, that we would, you know, we live in a burdened world. We need to bear the burdens of others. I, I would ask you that those who are uniquely burdened right now, are you open to receive a brother or sister to come along where you would share what you have in your life with them so that they could help you, walk with you? Not judge you. Not judge you, because we all have burdens at various stages and ages of life. We all have different burdens. Will you let them? And, and will you, those of you who maybe are more lightly burdened right now, would you be willing to shoulder the load? See, a lot of times we, we, we build these walls up and we don't let anybody know what we're suffering in. I, I can't tell you the number of people that come to our church and say, I don't know that I fit because I've got so many issues and I've sinned. And, and the people here, they're, they're so, they know the Bible so well. 
And I always get to tell them, listen, they've got basements just like you. I mean, they've got issues just like you, but we don't, we don't open up, and so we, you don't, we don't do this intentionally, but there's this kind of aura, you know, of they've passed through all that now that they're so far in the faith. They don't struggle with burdens anymore. Remember one dear saint that came here and been homeless for a time, ate out of dumpsters? The person said, if I ever share that with anybody, they would never understand. I said, oh, you'd be, yeah, you'd be shocked. But, but it's hard to convince them. And, and they did join. And they were loved and loved here. But, but, but the shame of doing that, because if we're not sharing burdens, I can't share my burdens. It's kind of like, can you do a little and I'll do a little? And you kind of work yourself into a transparency. But consider bearing one another's burdens and sharing your burdens with others. Now, many of you don't feel equipped. You're like, no, no, we've got to get the trained professionals in here. The trained professionals are no better than you. We don't know any more than you. We're just, the, the bearing is picking up the load with you, and we're all shouldering it together. Okay, the, the fourth thing I would say is that we do, uh, keeping in step with the Spirit is being, uh, doing good with all of our lives, with all things to people. You know, a passage like this shows you how impotent cognitive Christianity is. It shows you how absolutely unsaving, having a mental understanding and right orthodoxy, but you have no heart for love that wants to do good for others. Do you see the dichotomy? Do you see it's an oxymoron? I mean, to have heads full of theology and hearts empty towards others, that's dead faith, dead faith. If you want to know doctrine, I'll know it by doing it, right? We, we do what we know. You know, let us be those who both hear and do. We've got to listen and do. To what degree do you want to invest yourselves? This is what makes a community spirit-led. And, and then last, keeping in step with the spirit, we'll be looking at that final day. Folks, we... Okay, I'm going to give you a big word. We are... We have an eschatological view to life. What that means, eschatological view, it's a Greek word, eschaton, the last things. We look to the last things. We are a people who look to the final day. We're a people who understand in that final day is when all things will be made right. And that motivates us. It encourages us. It doesn't fear us. It motivates us so that we can begin doing that which we already know to do. See, to be a spirit-led community is to display the glory of God to the world. Uh, listen, you often hear me say that we're a colony of heaven. You know, this country was founded, you know, the 13 colonies along the eastern seaboard. They were English colonies. We were part of England. They were under the, the lordship of England. They had the values of England. So to all the Native Americans, they were displaying English ideas. That's what this country was, an outpost of England. Well, we're an outpost of glory, of heaven. We are a colony of heaven. We are to the world to be reflecting the values of a spirit-led community to the world that they would see. Oh, that's what heaven's going to look like. Not perfectly, but it's a foretaste. That's what I mean by saying we're a colony of heaven. And, and here's the deal. We often think about evangelism 
with this centrifugal idea. You know, you go out, you know, it's centrifugal, it spins in a certain way where objects are thrown out. Go out into the world. But evangelism is also centripetal. Centripetal is another form of spinning where the objects are drawn in. So as we walk in this spirit-led world, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, restoring sinners, exercising generosity, doing good to all people. People are drawn to us. It's a form of evangelism. We want to be part of that community. All these other gatherings of the world don't look like you look. We want to be part of that where you will shoulder my load. So it's an incredibly important passage for us. Paul has sown the seeds of theological treasure in your hearts for the past, all the way up to chapter 4 and to 5, and now he's saying that's who you are, this is what we do. Let's just take a moment and ask God to convict us, but also help us to walk in this. Open our eyes to it, that we might walk in it. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, thank you that you have called us out of darkness. For those that you have called and given your spirit, may we move in light of these exhortations. Lord, we want to enjoy walking, keeping in step with the spirit. We want to to contribute to this community. We want to benefit from this community. We want to reflect your values to the world. Grant us the grace to do that, even today. And Father, for those who are still bearing their burdens, burdens of shame and guilt of sin, would you you cause them to have eyes that see with 20-20 vision the glory of Christ, who has called to himself those who are heavy burdened, and he has promised to give them rest. And Lord, you need to bring forth life. You need to give new life through the power of your spirit and grant that to us in this church even those who are outside the faith father draw them in let them join with us in this pilgrimage and we pray this in the name of jesus amen amen please